Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. You may be seated, you may be seated. Father God, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your presence. And Father, here and now, we pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear those things that you would have us know and do. Father, would you give us the courage of heart to take your word and allow it to be a light into our soul, into our hearts, into our lives. And Father, may the working of your Holy Spirit in us and through us, may it transform us for your kingdom. And we pray this in the power and in the glory and in the honor of your precious and sufficient name. And all God's people say, amen, amen, amen. It's good to see you this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, if you will turn with me to Psalm 32, Psalm 32. We have looked at Psalm 32 over the last 11 weeks that we've been in this series, but I want to circle back around in an effort to create, beginning the process of creating some closure. Last week, we wrestled with this reality that for many of us, we lack that desire, that passion, that thirst that David spoke of when he spoke of a deer panting for water. And as we reflected on our lives, many of us, like myself, had to admit, I'm, I'm not there. The first week of this Psalm series, we asked this question, is it possible for us to be happy? And then we looked at Psalm 32 several weeks ago, and what we unpacked through a specific lens was that we settle for forgiveness, but what our heart really desires is innocence. We, we want the things that Adam and Eve had in the garden before sin corrupted our narrative and our world. This morning, I want us to look at Psalm through the same lens but I want us to look at Psalm 32 at a different angle. This morning we were supposed to be unpacking Psalm 81, and I really felt uh, about midweek that the Lord had a different direction for us to go, and I want to be obedient and faithful to that prompting. John Wesley says, and we talked about this last week, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they are clergy or lay, such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Which reminds us of the words that John Newton wrote in his favorite and most poignant song, Amazing Grace, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. In grace, my fears were relieved. In that mindset and developing that lens, let's now turn to Psalm 32, which is a psalm of David. This is following his indiscretion with Bathsheba, his sin, which he was called out, called on the carpet, which he fully admitted, fully took ownership of, repented, confessed, 
And these are the words that David writes. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. You see, when I refused to confess my sin, my body was wasting away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me and my strength, it evaporated like water in the summer heat. And then the psalmist calls us to a state of, or a posture of pausing, of reflecting. Verse five, I finally confessed all of my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. God, you forgave me, and all of my guilt is gone. Pause, reflect. Verse six. Therefore, let the, all of the godly pray to you while there is still time that may, may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory, Paul's. And then the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and I will watch over you. And then a warning, do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All who obey him shout for joy. All whose hearts are pure. Psychologists tell us that for a life, for an individual to experience joy, happiness. There are primarily three things that each individual requires. They need to feel safe, secure. They need to feel clean, innocent, pure. And they need to feel significant. They need to feel valued. In other words, they need security. They need freedom. And they need to be able to not feel condemned or, or judged. They need to feel safe. We say often at Mount Zion that God's desire for you and for me is to step into life. What kind of life? The very best life possible. A life that comes only through accepting Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and through submission to him and his lordship. And when we do that, we are promised freedom from guilt, from shame, from the fear of judgment, meaning that psychology echoes what scriptures internally say, that everyone wants to feel innocent, everyone wants to feel safe, and everyone wants to have value. For some of us, we feel like we've forfeited this. Why? Because every time we look in the mirror, we have allowed our worst day, our bad decisions to define us, to identify us, 
Therefore, we feel that we have messed up so much. We have forfeited our right to those promises that God calls us to as children of God. And for some of us, we, it seems elusive, but we can't put our finger on why it's absent from our lives, why we don't feel safe, why we don't feel innocent or pure, and why we don't feel like we have value. It's much like this book I read when I was in graduate school by this writer named Kafka who writes in his book, The Trial, about a man who is put on trial for his life, yet he does not know what crime he committed, what charges against him. And he spends his time accusation after accusation, all self-inflicted, asking the question, am I on trial for this? Is it when I, do they know about this? Or was it because I caused this? Or because I done that? And at the end, there is absolutely no closure because the warden of the prison actually stabs him and, and he dies before he ever makes it to trial. And Kafka refers to this as the struggle of the human condition, that each and every one of us have this unforeseen guilt that we wrestle with most, the majority of our lives. And yet we don't really know why we feel so much guilt, shame, and why we feel so devalued and unworthy. But in Psalm 32, David, he asks this question, is there something wrong with me? Which is where many of us were last week when we talked about David's desire, his passion for God of being compared to that of a thirsting to death animal. We talked about how it was not this sweet, soothing love song. That In fact, it was this agonizing, horrible experience. And many of us concluded, I'm not there yet. And time and time again, people ask the question, Luke, how do I get there? What is wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me? And according to David, the answer is an astounding yes. There is, in fact, something wrong with you, and that that is wrong with you is actually keeping you from experiencing the joy and the freedom that comes only through a relationship with Christ Jesus. So let's take a look at it. Psalm 32. Oh, the joys, verse 1. Oh, the joys, literal translation is hashay, which means happiness. Oh, the happiness that comes to those whose disobedience, whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. David, in this moment, he is connecting joy with a proper understanding of forgiveness. And we discussed this several weeks ago once again. So let's go back. Forgiveness is not an inability to remember. Forgiveness is not to forget. Forgiveness is to choose to not to take what is in the past and bring it to the here and now. God, in other words, he has something to display, something far more powerful than spiritual amnesia in regard to our disobedience and our sin patterns. He chooses when we ask and when we confess and when we believe not to take those past discretions that were in our past and bring them to our here and now. When you forgive those that are closest to you in your relationships, you are making the same declaration and the same promise. When you say, sweetheart, I forgive you, you are forfeiting your right to take a past discretion a wrongdoing and bring it to your here and now. So David is saying, 
There's joy in that. There's freedom in that. There's innocence that is to be taken hold of when we have this proper understanding of what true biblical forgiveness is. There is, in fact, something wrong with you. There is past mistakes, but we are not to let those past mistakes identify us, to mark us, to claim us. We are to walk in the promise that we, as Christ's followers, are completely and fully and truly forgiven. And because of that, we are no longer to walk in shame or guilt. So that uneasiness that we feel when we look in the mirror, it is not how God sees us. Verse 3, when I refuse to confess my sin, however... My body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And then scripture calls us to pause, to reflect. What does this mean for us? And in this moment, what we see is David connecting this feeling of unhappiness to condemnation in God. And what this scripture in this moment reveals is what took place in the garden. When I hid from God, which echoes that of origin, echoes that of Genesis talk, when Adam and Eve first sinned, what did they do? They realized that they were naked, that they were fully exposed. So they ran and they hid. And God, as he walked in the garden, asked, where are you? And as they emerged, God calling them out of hiding, he asked the question, what have you done? And in this moment, Adam, instead of taking ownership of his sin, his disobedience, his open rebellion to God, he excused it. He threw Eve and he threw God under the bus and said, the woman you gave me caused me to sin. After God did some heart work with Adam and Eve, he sacrificed an animal and then clothed the nakedness, the shame, the guilt of Adam and Eve with the skins of that sacrificial animal. Referencing that of us, when we are fully exposed by our sin and our condemnation and our judgment, Christ Jesus came and sacrificed as the perfect lamb, clothing us in righteousness, his righteousness, so that we could experience freedom, freedom everlasting. Now, guilt is not always bad. Oftentimes, guilt is God's messenger to reveal in our hearts, in our lives, those things that are not of him so that we can ruthlessly eliminate and uproot those poor choices and bad behaviors. For instance, it's like if I touch a hot stove I am thankful that the pain caused by touching that hot stove because it prevents me from causing greater harm or damage to my body, which is oftentimes what guilt does. When you sin or when you misbehave, when you have a wrong fall or you do a wrong action and you feel guilt over it, we oftentimes feel that that's a bad thing, but the psalmist is experiencing that exact emotion, that exact feeling. And what he is saying is that guilt that you feel, it is not always bad. 
It is oftentimes a red flag highlighting an area in your life that you need to be made aware of. For me, I remember coming to this conclusion as I really uncovered that the Ten Commandments, they weren't just a series of actions to do or not to do, but actually it revealed that of the motives of the heart. So I remember when it said, thou shalt not have no other God. And for a while, I thought, well, I believe in one true God. But then I realized how many idols that I have competing for that top tier position in my life, that of significance or that of wealth or that of prestige and that of those idols that I created and that I cast and that I surrounded my life with, meaning that I couldn't check that box. And then I thought, well, obey authority. And I've told you before that if you were authority when I was growing up, then I was a thorn in your side. I rebelled against all forms of authority. So I couldn't check that box either. And then adultery, I thought, well, that one, that one I got covered. I've never cheated. I've never been unfaithful to Jessica. But then when it reveals the lust of the heart and the eyes and the motives and the thoughts, and I thought, goodness gracious, I can't check that box either. Let's just get to murder. I mean, I've never murdered anybody. But then scripture reveals that sometimes when we slander or when we gossip or when we have thoughts that we can actually murder someone's character. And I thought, man, I'm... I'm 0 for 10. I'm not doing well. I mean, anytime that you have those odds, you fail the test. And because of that, it gives us this paranoia of sense that we just don't match up. And shame begins to take root in our hearts and in our lives. And we feel like the ledger that's stacked against us, it is just growing and we cannot get from under the oppression, the shame, the guilt of not being enough. So we do what? We try to hide it. I remember when I was in college, I was in South Carolina and I got a speeding ticket. And I had an idiot friend named Luke and he told me that tickets didn't cross state lines. So that if I paid the fine, it wouldn't find me out. I, my parents would never know. It wouldn't go against my insurance. So I showed up at the courthouse. I paid the $90 and I thought it was done. I returned home and my dad was downstairs in the basement. And he asked the question when I came through the door, is there something that you want to tell me? And I said, what do you know? <laughs> and he said, is there anything that you have done wrong that you want to confess. And I said again, what well, depends on what you know? <laughs> and he said, this is what I know. I know that you have 15 lawyers offering their services to represent you in traffic court. <laughs> and he handed me a stack of envelopes. You see, I thought what happens in South Carolina stays in South Carolina. I had no idea that my record, it would follow me. It would eventually expose me. It would reveal in me disobedience, wrong behaviors, grace, grace that makes you afraid. So scripture says, day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. 
My strength, it was dried up. Verse five, the psalmist goes on. Finally, I confessed all of my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. And all of my guilt was gone. And it says, pause, reflect. And what we see in verse five, David is giving us five ways to experience freedom, joy, happiness. The first thing that he reveals to us is that we find joy. We must be honest about our sin. He says, I stopped trying to hide my guilt. Clear reference, once again, echoing that behavior that was discovered in the garden. It is symbolic that when we made these coverings and we try to hide ourselves falsely with the elusive that we cannot be seen, God always sees in secret. There is no water deep enough, no cave dark enough, No door strong enough, no mask elusive enough that keeps our sin from God's knowledge or his sight. So the first thing that we oftentimes typically do when our sin is exposed just like that in the garden, what have you done? The woman that you gave me made me eat it. We excuse it. We blame shift. Think about it. The last time you sinned, your last indiscretion, your last behavior that was not that of God, do these excuses, blame shifting, sound familiar? Well, the reason I am like this is because of the situation or the circumstances I find myself in I've been treated badly. I've been wrong, and that justifies my bad actions. I haven't had all the privileges that you have had. I didn't grow up in the family that you had. I've not had the job and the opportunities and the open doors that you have. I don't have the marriage that you have. My wife isn't responsive to me sexually, and so I justify my actions. What I'm doing is not that bad, especially compared to so-and-so are compared to how much good I've done, I'm owed a few things. But that's not how David addresses the sin in his life. What does he say? I acknowledge my sin. I confess my sin. I understand my sin. I was 33 years old before I knew that there was a difference between hearing and understanding. I'll never forget Jessica asking the question of me. Luke, when do you feel most loved by me? And I'm thinking to myself, well, go watch Top Gun and then have sex. You know, I mean, that's when I feel most loved by you. But I had been married long enough that I knew that that wasn't the right answer. And I knew that Jessica was trying to teach me something in this moment. So I did what any good husband do. I said, I don't know, baby. When do you feel most loved by me? And she said, I feel most loved by you when you ask me good questions. When Jessica asks me good questions, I feel like I'm being interrogated. I I don't like good questions. And I will never forget, I mean, you could have blown me over, knocked me over with a feather in that moment. 
I was so perplexed and so confused. But then I realized that when Jessica would tell me of a struggle or a situation that she was dealing with, I would hear just enough to respond, to fix the problem that she was dealing with. And then I would leave thinking I was the hero, thinking it was resolved, only to come back into the living room or the kitchen or back home moments later to find her, to overhear her on the phone with her mother or with her, one of her good friends talking about the same situation. Then I'd be like, hey, time out, girl. Now you're just gossiping. We done fixed that. And what I realized that Jessica's mom was doing and that her friends were doing well that I was completely unaware of is that instead of hearing for an opportunity to fix, they were seeking to understand. They would respond by saying, oh, Jess, I imagine that made you feel or I imagine that caused and they were really trying to know her. And that is what we refer to simply as empathy. And when we sin, that is often absent from us. We understand legally and legalistically how we have done wrong. God said this and we did this. But what we don't often apply is that of empathy. We don't think about the way that it caused God to feel. We don't think about how it caused harm or hurt. When we say something or we do something relationally that is against the laws and the values that we have established in our home, we oftentimes don't think about how that made that other individual feel. We lack empathy. We're absolutely disconnected. All we want to get to is how do we fix the problem. I sinned, I won't do it again. But until we apply empathy to the transgressions in our lives, we will not truly understand what confession is. It's the story of Jonah. We've talked about this before. Jonah, he sins, he is deliberately, openly disobedient to God's call and will for his life. He finds himself on a ship heading in the other direction asleep. Why the sailors who are up above working, they have gathered supplies for over a year so that they could return home and put food on their family's table and pretty dresses on their wives' backs. And they are found throwing everything that they had collected for over a year overboard. Why? Not because of their sin, not because of their disobedience, because Jonah's sin, his disobedience, affected everyone that he was around. Your sin, your disobedience affects everyone that you come into contact with. And when we understand that, it changes everything. If I had an ability to take the sin that you will commit this coming week. So once you walk out these doors, there's going to be sin that is going to be ledgered. And every sin you commit, when you return next Sunday, it is gonna be put on full display for every eye to see and for every ear to hear. I guarantee you, 
you would spend this week fully aware of your actions, your words, and your deeds. And if I had that ability, I guarantee you would sin far less. Why? Because you don't want your sin exposed to your neighbor, to other people. Do you not realize that nothing is in the shadows for God? That your sin is on full display. God sees and God knows. We recognize that. We identify that. We believe that. But it often doesn't keep us from sinning. Why? Because we care more about what other people think of us than what God himself thinks of us. Why? Because we believe we have not allowed grace to cause fear. Grace that caused fear because we have fully claimed the promises of mercy apart from condemnation, apart from right living. To find joy, you must learn to hate your sin more than you hate the consequences of your sin. Confession in the Greek means, as we talked about, to see from the other person's perspective. Verse nine says, do not be like the senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. What David is revealing in this moment is that when you place a bit in the mouth of a horse or a mule, they're not following you because they love you. What David is saying, don't be like the mule. Don't be like the horse. Don't always allow your circumstances to shake you to your core for you to be faithful and obedient to God's will and his desires for your heart and for your lives. To find joy, you must actually change the direction that you are heading. Verse 10 says, he talks about his newfound trust in God. And then verse 11, new joy in God leads to surrender in God. In other words, where there is no change, there has not been proper confession. Now to clarify, confession doesn't lead to a perfect life. It doesn't lead to a sin-free life. But what confession does do is it leads to a new direction in life. When you truly understand how your transgressions, how your sin affects God and affects others, you have no desire to continue to head in that same direction, to continue to repeat those same behaviors. So you begin to change the way that you think and the way that you live and the way that you act. Why? Because to find joy you must hide in God, not from God. Verse seven says, for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with new songs of victory. And it says, pause, stop. I love the imagery here where it says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. When Jesus died upon the cross, he yelled what? It is finished, it is done. If you found out that you had a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member who was drowning in debt and 
their car or their vehicle was about to be repossessed. It was about to be taken away from them because they couldn't make the payments. So you went to the bank and you said, how much do they owe? And a bank revealed this is how much they owe. And you paid it in full, wrote one check, paid it off. And then you were driving down the road and you saw the repo man backing their vehicle up to take that vehicle. What would you do? You would stop, you'd get out of your vehicle and you'd say, hey, stop, you can't take it. Why? It's paid in full. That's what Christ did for us. He paid for our sins, our transgressions in full, meaning that the enemy has no claim to us. Sin has no claim to our lives. We are not doomed and damned to repeat the generational curses of our family. We can actually live life apart from the sin that plagues us so much. So let me close by showing you two things. One is I, I want to show you a warning, and then the second is I want to give you and reveal to you a test. Verse six says this, therefore let all godly pray to you while there is still time, that there may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. What the psalmist is saying in this moment is that right now, each and every one of us, we can confess Christ as Lord. We can accept him. We can bow our knees to his lordship. We can surrender our lives to his ways and his promises. We can believe what scripture says is true about Christ Jesus, that he is our redemption, that he is our savior, that he is the sacrificial lamb that laid down his life so that we could experience freedom, so that we could have life. Life, what kind of life? Free of guilt, shame, and condemnation. A life with him for all of eternity. That is your choice today. And there will be a day that comes that you will not be able to choose him, that the flood waters of judgment will be upon us, that each and every one of us will stand before a righteous God and we will have to give an account for what we did with our relationship with Jesus here on earth. Did you choose him? Did you surrender to him? Did you make him Lord of your life? And scripture says the test to know if this is true is the way that we look and treat others. For those that have been freely forgiven, when we look at others, the way that they have wronged us and sinned against us, scripture says that we freely forgive and that we have grace upon them. For those who are forgiven much, love much. So how are we doing with this? with those that sit across the political aisle, with those who don't align with us, who don't look like us, don't act like us, do we love them well? Charles Spurgeon says this, when we think too highly of sin, we think too highly, lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before God convicted and condemned with the rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to honor the Redeemer whose blood has cleansed them from their sins. Verse 10 of Psalm 32 says, Unfailing love surrounds me, those who trust in the Lord. There are two types of people in this room right now. 
So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want, to, I want you to identify what camp you are in. For some, you feel like you're good enough that you don't need forgiveness. And for some of you, you feel like you're so bad that you can't obtain deep forgiveness. For those of you who feel like you're good enough, I can only pray that God will open your eyes to how sinful you are. I pray that you'll stop covering your sin, that you'll remove the mask, both to yourself and before God. And for those of you who think you're too bad to be forgiven, I pray that God will open to your eyes to how wide, how high, how deep, and how long his love is for you. How extravagant his grace is when he sent Christ Jesus to the cross for you. How sufficient Christ's sacrifice was for your sins. How powerful the resurrection was from the dead on your behalf. And how powerful and ready the Holy Spirit is standing, waiting to empower you. And how merciful his grace is for you. And how good, good, good he really is. So where you are this morning, have you made that decision to confess him as Lord and Savior? Scripture tells us that if we believe that he is Lord, that we too will be saved. So if you've yet to make that decision, would you pray this simple prayer? Father, today I give you my life. There's going to be many steps that you have to take following that prayer, but that is your first step. Father, I give you my life. And for those of us we feel like we're good enough, that we can stand on our own merit. Romans tells us that for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we have no ability to judge others. But we also have to realize that apart from God and his grace, we are all damned. We don't have a chance. So Father, enter us. Reveal in us those things that you would have us know and do. And Father, will you give us the courage of heart to be faithful and obedient in the days ahead. And Father, we will proclaim your goodness and we will glorify your matchless name. And all God's people say, amen. Would you please stand to your feet as we sing to our glorious and beautiful God. Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.